We'll get it before the end of the semester. Are you ready? The God's child yell. I am God's child. We're going to start over. We've got, we got Charlton Taylor in the house tonight, so we're going to welcome him with a really good God's child yell, all right? I am God's child. I am somebody. Because God don't make no junk. Amen. 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 Y'all can have a seat. For, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt Schock. I'm the campus minister here at University Church of Christ. And the most unique thing about Aggies for Christ, and the reason why this was, became home for me, was because Aggies for Christ is located out of a bigger church. We're housed out of a home church called University Church of Christ. And so tonight, our preaching minister over there, Charlton Taylor, is going to bring the word for us. So if you can, just give him a big welcome, and, uh, and he's going to bring it tonight. Thanks. All right, well, I, uh, I love to hang out with college students because inside, internally, I feel like a college student. But when I hang out with you guys, you keep calling me sir. So I realize that I don't look like a college student, even though I may feel like it. Um, I'm really glad to be here tonight. It's good to spend some time with you. Um, this is a great ministry. It's something that our church is passionate about, something we believe in. And I want you to know that... Um, Matt Schock, he'll be here a year come January. I'm so glad he's on our team. I'm so glad he's a part of our staff here. Because there's a word that we both overutilize and underutilize in our culture, and that's love. Right? Like uh, Bruno Mars and Taylor Swift and Rihanna, they way overuse love because they have no idea what they're talking about. But then we way underuse the word love when it, about what it really means. Right? This this desire to see Jesus come alive in people, this working towards the interests of someone else. And I want you to know Matt Schock loves you, right? He loves you, he loves that campus, and he loves this church. And that's why I'm so glad he's on our staff, because that's so important. And he loves Jesus too. So tonight, I, I don't know, when I, when I grew up in, uh, when I tried to play sports, I had a coach Actually, every coach I had, probably every coach that ever existed, if some kid started whining about his leg hurting or getting hit too hard or, or being winded, he'd always say, you know, I, you know, I grew up in West Texas, I was like, you know, excuses are like elbows. Everybody's got one. Now, if you played sports, you may have heard that. They would actually use another part of the body a lot of times, too, but it doesn't make a very good, like, sermon title. If you can't figure that out, ask a jock around you. They can explain it to you. Um, so, but... So, elbows and excuses. Tonight, we're going to break some elbows. All right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to break some elbows. And to do it, we're going we're to have this encounter with Jesus through the eyes of another individual. And in this encounter, we're going to break some elbows. So, let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for what he means for us. And just as Matt said, that because of him, we, we can gather here in great hope, great expectation, and great uh, great peace without fear, God, because where you are, there is no fear. There is no fear here tonight. There is no shame tonight. Just love. And we're so thankful for that. God, help this word to be your word and not mine. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Before we get started, uh, my youngest son is 10, which means he's really into poop a whole lot. Because when you're a 10-year-old boy, that's like the coolest thing in the world. So we have Pearsonisms, which are, you know, little sayings he says. So yesterday, the Pearsonism, he's on his way home from school, and as all smart children do, you hold your poop until you get home, right? Because you don't want to poop in public school because it's just, it's embarrassing. 
So that's like the first thing he does. I did the same thing when I was a kid. And he tells my wife on the way home, don't tell him I told you this story. He, on the way home, he's like, he goes, Mom, my poop is my friend. But he needs to go visit his other friends in the sewer. So there's a little, little word from Pearson for you. And then today, his older brother called him a turd. And so his response was, then why am I not inside of you? So uh, this, is, uh, this is where we live, right? In a house full of boys. It's a good time. It's a good time. So in 2003, Aaron Ralston, uh, an avid outdoorsman, decided to take a solo canyoneering trip. And he was going to head to the southeastern part of Utah to Blue John Canyon. It was like this maze of beautiful canyons. Now, he was a very experienced outdoorsman. But uh, he made the number one mistake you make when you go solo canyoneering or when you go on any kind of solo trip. And that is he did not tell anybody where he was going and he did not tell anybody how long he would be gone. So he gets down to Blue John Canyon and he finds this nice canyon he wants to get down into. And there's this giant boulder that's kind of bridging the two edges sides of this canyon. So he kind of, you know, he steps on it, he presses on it to make sure it's solid. Um, and so he kind of gets up on top of it and kind of starts climbing his way down. When he gets to one side of this boulder, the weight shifts in the boulder and it comes crashing down through the canyon with Aaron Ralston underneath it. When Aaron Ralston comes to, he realizes his right arm is trapped against the canyon wall by this several hundred pound boulder that he can't budge. And he's stuck. He's stuck there. And so after five freezing nights in the desert, after growing extremely hungry, after drinking his own urine in order to stay hydrated, he does the unthinkable. And so he takes his body and he uses it as leverage and he, and he cranks it down and he breaks his radius in his arm. And then he shifts the other way and he breaks his ulna, the other bone in his arm. So now he's got his bones broken, so now he can get through the tissue to free himself. And he takes out his Leatherman pocket knife. And unfortunately, the long blade, he's, he's kind of dulled it by scraping in the side of the canyon. And so he takes a little short blade and he begins to saw his own arm off. So after he works through the skin and some of the meat, he gets down to the tendons and he gets down to the nerves. And he takes the pliers because he can't cut through that with a little knife. And he begins to pull at his, anybody throw up yet? At his tendons and his nerves. And eventually, pop, he's free. He's free. And then he goes, he's got to rappel down 65 feet with one arm. And then he walks 13 miles before he comes across another human being. He's alive today. And you're like, what would drive someone, right? What would drive someone to cut off their own arm after surviving five days with barely eating and drinking your own pee and then repelling 65 feet and walking half a marathon? That's insane. What would drive somebody to do that? The answer is hope. Hope. Hope is a powerful force. Hope is one of the most powerful forces of the human heart. And hope is not wishful thinking, right? It's not crossing your fingers and just maybe, just maybe things are going to work out. Hope is confidence that a better future is attainable. Hope is confidence that a better future is attainable. It's the ability to envision a better future than your present one. The ability to envision. Like if Aaron Ralston couldn't see himself back in his home, sitting in front of the TV, eating a grilled stuffed Taco Bell burrito, then he probably never would have got out of there because he would have given up. If he couldn't see himself in a different situation, if he didn't have hope that he could get out of it, he would have given up and he would have died there in the canyon, probably washed out by some flood later. Right? Hope is powerful. Hope compels us to make the envisioned future a reality. Listen to that. Hope compels us to make the envision, the better future, a reality. It leads us to action. And that's why Satan doesn't want you to have hope. 
because it calls us to action, because it keeps us from giving up. So he doesn't want you to have hope, and that's why he's all about sin. All right, sin does a couple of things. The first thing is this, sin destroys. Sin destroys. Like, sometimes we get this view of sin that it's like, you know, some, some bride and the bridesmaid, you know, doesn't show up at the wedding. It's like, oh, you didn't show up at my wedding. And it's one of those things, like, you didn't show up for my big day. Like, that's what sin is for God, that he crosses his arm. Like, ah, you, you did what I told you not to do. I hate you. That's not what sin is. Right? God hates sin because sin is the anti-creation. It undoes what God intended for the world. Right? It undoes his plan. It destroys. It tears down. It breaks. It annihilates. It hurts you and it hurts those around you. That's why he hates it, because it hurts what he loves the most, his creation in you and me. So it destroys. But here's the second thing sin does. Sin defines. Right? Sin is what Satan wants to do, is to define us. It's like the iPod stuck on replay over and over. You're a piece of crap. There's no way Jesus would love you. You're just a piece of crap for what you did. There's no way, Jesus. And eventually, our sin defines us. We, be, we can't see ourselves past our sin, past our failures, past our faults. And when that happens, then we begin to think that maybe because of our sin, we're outside of God's grace. We're outside of God's love. We've, our sin has put us outside of God's ability to reach out and grab us. And that's when we lose hope. When sin begins to define us, we lose hope. Sometimes we lose hope, you lose hope because you believe your sin is too big. Right? You're like, look, look, Charlton, you don't understand. It's not like, it's not like I, I cheated on a test. It's not like I lied to a police officer. It's not like I stole some candy bar from a 7-Eleven. No, I, if I told you, if I told you the stuff that I've done, you would, you would leave. Like, you wouldn't be my friend. It's dark. I mean, it's, it's really bad stuff. That I've, I, I mean, there's um, God's love. He can't love someone who's done what I've done. My sin is too big. So sometimes we lose hope because we believe our sin is too big. Sometimes we lose hope because we, we believe it's too late. We believe it's too late. Like, like, look, I, you're like, Charlton, here's the thing. I, I have never, I mean, my whole life, right? My whole life, whether, you know, what it is now, 18 to 20-something, or whether you're 50, 60, 70, my whole life I have pushed against God. In fact, I've, I have deliberately chosen to do things that I know Jesus ta- against what Jesus talks about. I've deliberately moved the opposite way of, of church and the Bible. I have deliberately rebelled against God my whole life. And now Jesus is going to be like, oh, yeah, come on up. Come on. It's not, come on in here. It's fine. When there's other people who've devoted their whole lives to following him, to loving him, to serving him, then all of a sudden be like, hey, how about me? Sometimes we think we give up hope because we think it's too late because of our sin. And the last one is this. Other times you lose hope because you believe you've done too little. It's like, you know, I like Jesus and all, but I've never given 100%. You know, I've never really gone to church. I've never really fully given my life to him. You know, the Bible says we were created in, in God to do good works. I've never done good works. If you took all the good things I did and you put them on a scale, all the bad things I did, I mean, there's not even a competition. It's going to go way down on the bad side. Like, I haven't done enough. And there's people who have devoted their lives to serving God and loving God. I've just, I haven't done enough. Like, if, if God saw me, he'd be like, shh, shh, you've done nothing for me. And you know what I did for you? So sometimes we lose hope because we believe we've done too little. But tonight we're going to break some elbows. We're going to de- deconstruct all of these excuses as to why we think we might be outside of God's grace, or why we might be outside of his love, and we're going to use one story to do it. We're going to look through the eyes of the criminal on the cross and his encounter with Jesus. It takes place in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. 
He's been convicted. Uh, he's been sentenced to crucifixion, which is death on a, you know, by suffocation after being nailed to a piece of wood and after being beaten horribly. So he's on his way to the cross. Two criminals are going with him. That's where we pick up the story. The two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked Jesus. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And here we're introduced to our character for tonight. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's talk about too big, about sins that are too big. Right? This guy right here, there's no doubt that he's failed. Right? This criminal on the cross, there's no doubt that he's screwed up. There's no doubt that he's done something pretty big. In fact, he, we don't even know his name. Right? Luke doesn't refer to him as guy. He doesn't refer to him as man. He refers to him as criminal on purpose. Look back at verses 32 and 33. Look, look. two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified them there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. He goes down in history, and the actual translation is evildoer. Like, he goes down in history as evildoer number two. That's who he is. Right, this guy's on death row. Right? He's, he has done something seriously wrong. Anybody here on death row? No. Right, so he's done something serious, worse than probably what we've all done. Right? He's, he's being executed. He's like, well, maybe he's innocent like Jesus was innocent. Maybe he's innocent. He actually takes you. He says, you know what? I'm getting what I deserve. I deserve to be executed. So he's done something seriously wrong. And Jesus says, hey, evildoer number two, today you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. Philip Yancey tells a story. Uh, about a guy named Will Campbell. Will Campbell in the 1960s graduated from Princeton Divinity School. Um, so 1960s, a lot of racial tension going on. Um, Will Campbell moved back to Alabama, which was his home, which is a hot spot, right? A lot of racists down there in Alabama. A lot of racist Christians, white racist Christians down in Alabama. So when he got down there, he felt compelled, based on what he'd learned in school, to really get involved in the civil rights movement, which meant a lot of white Christians at that time hated him. So he said he ended up spending more time with, you know, displaced northerners, agnostics, atheists, um, blacks from his community, um, from socialists, a lot of, you know, kind of the fringe people of that culture at the time. He spent his time making friends with them. One of them was a guy by the name of P.D. East. P.D. East was an agnostic editor of a paper. And one night he grabbed Campbell, knowing he was a Christian. He said, hey, he said, why don't you tell me? Why don't you sum up the Christian message, the Christian, the Christian story in ten words? So Campbell thought about it. He said, okay, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. What he didn't know is that P.D. East would remember what he said. And on one of the darkest nights in Campbell's life, he would challenge him on his own understanding of the gospel. Because not too long after that, a white sheriff in town 
took his shotgun and shot another civil rights worker um, by the name of, uh, what is his name? Uh, Jonathan Daniels shot him in the back. Some of the, some of the gunshot hit another uh, black kid who was sitting down just outside of a store, left him in critical condition. So this sheriff, you know, killed one of this guy's best friends and left another kid critically wounded. And on that same night, P.D. East shows up to Campbell. He says, hey, Campbell, he says, was your, uh, your civil rights friend, Jonathan Daniels, was he a bastard? Campbell had to say, yeah about his recently murdered friend. And he said, what about, what about that sheriff? Was he a bastard? That was a lot easier for Campbell to answer. And then he said this, which of those bastards do you think God loves more? Campbell said that rocked his world. That night, grace rocked his world. And here's what he wrote about that moment. He says, I agreed that the notion that a man could go to a store where a group of unarmed human beings are drinking soda pop and eating moon pies, fire a shotgun blast at one of them, tearing his lungs and heart and bowels from his body, turn on another and send lead pellets ripping through his flesh and bones, and that God would set him free is almost more than I could stand. Now listen to this. But unless that is precisely the case, then there is no gospel. There is no good news. Unless that is the truth, we have only bad news. And then Philip Yancey says this, The free offer of grace extends not just to the undeserving, but to those who in fact deserve the opposite. Listen to that. Grace is offered not just to the undeserving, but to those who in fact deserve the opposite. And this criminal is on the cross, evildoer number two, getting exactly what he deserves. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Today, you will be with me because my grace is bigger than anything you've done. There is no sin that's too big. Okay, well, what about too late, right? What about too late? If Jesus, you know, can't do anything too big to extend outside of God's grace and love, what about too late? Well, could it be any later than this guy? Right? I mean, he's on the cross, right? Like, he's, he is in the process of dying. He's like, hey, Jesus, hey, I believe in you. Like in the, I mean, you can't wait any longer than that. I mean, that's about it. It's like some guy's in the electric chair, and he's like, hey, you know, one more thing, Jesus. Nope, nope, eh, you're going to pull that, you're going to pull that lever, right? Because there's something inside of us like, that's not fair. That's not fair that some guy on his deathbed could claim Jesus and get all the grace and love of Jesus. That's not fair. And you know why it doesn't feel fair? Because it's not fair. God's not fair. There's nothing fair about grace. If grace were fair, it would cease to be grace. It's a gift that we don't deserve. Jesus tells a story about uh, this landowner who needed some help on his land. So he goes out and he grabs uh, six in the morning, goes out and grabs a crew of guys. They start working. He says, look, I'll pay you, I'll pay you 100 bucks for the day if you come work for me. Guys start working. And he goes out again at nine in the morning and he grabs some more people to come work for him. Then he goes out at 3 in the afternoon, and he grabs some more people to work for him. Then he goes out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. That's one hour before he shuts down. He shuts down at 6, and he calls him in. And he says, hey, come work for me. So he's got all these different guys working for different hours. At the end of the day, he lines them up for their paycheck, right? And he goes to the guys who've worked 12 hours, and he gives them 100 bucks because that's what he told them he would give them. And then he goes to the guys who worked one hour, right? Should probably get about $8, and he gives them 100 bucks. Hey, wait a minute. 
And the guys who work 12 hours are like, wow, wow, hold on now. We work 12 times as long as these guys, and you're paying us the same as them? And here's what the landowner says. He says, hey, 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 look, here's the thing. What did I tell you I'd pay you for working for me? 100 bucks? I did what I said, right? And you're angry at me because I chose to be generous to them? God is not fair. God is generous. God is not fair. God is generous. You cannot be too late for God's grace. When I lived in Grants, New Mexico, I got a call from this family that lived out like in West Virginia, like somewhere way away from New Mexico. They call in kind of this panic voice. They're like, look, like, uh, my, my mom, she's in this, this nursing care facility. She's about to die. She wants to become a Christian. But here's the problem. I don't think she can be baptized because if you put her under the water, she's not coming up alive. She's that weak. Right? And listen, I believe in baptism. I teach baptism. I practice baptism. You know, I, think, I think the Bible points us, if you, know, if you want to follow Jesus, baptism is part of what we do in that process. So what do you do, Right? You want to, so what did I do? What I did was I, I told them what they needed to know. That is God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. He's going to take care of her. So I sat down and I talked with her and I prayed with her. You know, and then when I was done, they tried to give me money. Why? Because they were so afraid that it was going to be too late for her. They are so afraid that if we couldn't dunk her all the way in the water and get her back up with her being alive, that she wouldn't make it into God's presence. And the whole point is, no, it's never too late. God's grace is that big. No matter if you've spent your whole life rebelling against God, it's not too late. If you think you've gone too far in your life, you can't go too far. It's never too late. It's never too late. And then finally, you know, okay, okay, so the criminal cross shows us that God can, there's nothing too big, it's never too late, but what about too little? What about too little? Because you might be saying, yeah, I really, I have never given 100% to Jesus. Like, I believe in Jesus, but I don't think you can even call me a follower of Jesus. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't gone to church enough. I haven't been generous enough. I haven't helped enough. I haven't served enough. I, I haven't loved enough. You know, I haven't, I haven't really done much for Jesus. And you may think, you know, if God took all of us and, and he stood us up in a line, you know, he would say, oh, man, Jamin, 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 look at Jamin. He has done a really good job. You see, look at this list of things he's done for me. Oh, and Tessa, Tessa has done, man, she's done some awesome things for me. But you, what have you done? Like, there's, what have you, I died for you. What have you done for me? I've died for you. You've, you've done, you really think you've earned the cross? You really think you've earned the cross? There are some of you who feel you have not done enough to earn God's grace. And so you live in fear. There are others of you you spend your entire life serving, working, praying, reading, trying to earn God's grace. But you can't earn God's grace. How much did the criminal on the cross do for Jesus? After looking at it, he did one thing. He said, shut up. He said, shut up for Jesus. Right? The other criminal starts yapping. He's like, hey, don't talk about him that way. And Jesus is like, mm-hmm, today you'll be with me in paradise. So if we're talking about the bare minimum, that's about it. Because the reality is this. Grace isn't based on what you do. Grace is a gift. If you earn a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's a wage. Gift is something you can't earn. When my youngest Pearson was born in, in Albuquerque, um, we didn't have maternity insurance. 
And so we, we made a deal with the hospital. If we paid up front $1,500, and if Mary Beth gave birth and got out of the hospital within 24 hours, that's all we'd have to pay. Right? So hopefully no complications. The other two pregnancies and births had gone great, so we're like, yes, we're in. Fif- you know, $1,500 we go in. Then we find out, once we're in the hospital, that Pearson has strep B, which is a mandatory 36-hour hospital stay. The birth went fine, everything was good, except he had to stay for 36 hours, which meant the $1,500 out the window we would be billed for 12 hours longer. I got the bill in the mail for $10,000. I didn't have $10,000 extra dollars. I was like, I don't know what to do. So I wrote, a, I wrote a letter to the hospital. I was like, hey, look, here's the situation. 12 hours, we, we paid up front, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I got it letter back from the hospital. I took it, I opened it up, and it said balance, zero dollars. Ten thousand dollars of debt erased. And I didn't wash dishes for that hospital. Like, I didn't wire the hospital for internet access. I didn't do anything. Like, they just forgave the debt. It was a gift. That's grace. Grace isn't something you can earn then it ceases to be grace. So, you can never do enough to earn God's grace, and you can never do too little to not get His grace. Because it's not based on what we do, it's based on who He is. And we learn this from the criminal on the cross. So there's really no more excuses. Well, my sin's too big. No, I took care of that one. Well, it's too late for me. No, I took care of that one too. Well, I just haven't done, no, yeah, we did, took care of that too. Criminal on the cross, all in one story, thank you. Philip Yancey tells a story. And so because of that, we should have hope, right? Like it's just, if all those things have been deconstructed, if all those elbows have been broken, then we should be able to be a people of hope. We should be able to be a people of hope. Philip Yancey tells another story about a girl named Daisy. Daisy was a grew up with nine siblings. Her father was extremely abusive, an alcoholic. So he kicked the mom out of the house and kept the kids, which means the brunt of the alcoholism fell on them. She remembers seeing her brother and sister getting kicked across the floor. Eventually, her siblings got out of there as quickly as possible, and she lived the longest with her father, taking the brunt of his alcoholism more than any others. She grew to hate him. Eventually, he moved off, disappeared, and encountered Jesus while he was away. So as he grew older in life, he decided he needed to try to reconcile with all of his children. And he managed to restore a relationship with all of them but Daisy, because Daisy would have nothing to do with him. Too much hurt, too much pain. He moved into her sister's house just down the block. And the one thing she would do is she would let her grandkids, her daughter and her son, go down and see their grandfather because she thought it would be good for them. But she would never set foot in that house. And one day, her little daughter ran into the front door, and her father, old and a little bit senile, saw her daughter coming in, and his words were, Daisy, you've come to see me at last. And then Philip Yancey says these haunting words. He was hallucinating grace. He was hallucinating grace. Ah, that's a troubling phrase for me. I think the world hallucinates grace because it is a world that is starved for the gift that God offers, for the unconditional love that God offers. Starved for it. I just want you to know, you don't have to hallucinate grace tonight. God's here. 
His grace is here. You say, well, but no, no, no. It's still here. So we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite the worship band back up here. During the song, we're going to have folks at the back to pray with you. If you're in the middle of just making some crappy choices, God's grace is here for you. Come pray about that. If you just, you know, if you just want to, if you're just having a tough time and you need to feel and sense the love of God, a powerful way of doing that is just letting somebody put their hands on you, pray for you, feel God's love through, through their simple touch. It's a powerful thing. You don't have to hallucinate grace tonight. God's grace is here. This is a safe place because there's nothing you've done that puts you outside of God's love or outside of his grace. He just wants you. He wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. Let's pray. Then we'll worship together. Father, thank you for the story of the criminal on the cross. Thank you for the power of an encounter with Jesus. When Jesus encountered people, he changed their lives. We thank you for that. I thank you the way Jesus has encountered me, the way he has changed me, the way he continues to change me. God, I pray for this room. I know there's probably shame in this room. There's probably guilt in this room. There's sin in this room. So God, I pray, I pray today that folks will have the courage to step out and to confess, to repent. They need to do that just to ask for prayers, to be encouraged, to be loved on, to celebrate, whatever it may be, that they'll do that, Father. Thank you so much for Jesus, that he gave us grace, that he gave himself and asked for nothing back. So God, help us to give him our heart and our life out of gratitude and out of pursuit for him. His name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship.